Thank you for tuning in to Talking Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of a galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Brandon Winerdy, and today I'm talking to Dan Perry, iconic title designer who, well, created the opening crawl of the original Star Wars. You know, the crawl. <laughs> Uh, his work spans decades in directors, and I try to tackle as many as I can, from collaborations with William Friedkin and Martin Scorsese to Steven Spielberg and, of course, George Lucas. This is Talking Bay 94, Episode 92, Dan Perry. I mean, really, we can we can just start right at the top, which is how did this love of design and everything grow? Like growing up in your education, how did that kind of foster itself? Well, my mother's an artist. She's not professional, but she was always painted. So I was exposed to art materials and creative thinking and visualizing at a very early age. And apparently I had some natural talent that my teachers noticed and began cultivating me. By the time I was in high school, I was designing graphics and posters. And I started, in fact, at 12 years old, sign painting. I was selling my signs to supermarkets and grocery stores and bars and the nightclubs where they would advertise their acts that would appear and drinks they were selling and food and so on. So uh, as I was doing signs by hand with brush and paint, I started to design these letter forms and numbers into more graphic shapes. And I learned that was uh, an area called logos, where letter forms became a graphic symbol for companies. And as I learned that, I began studying the designers who did that kind of thing. And I was exposed to a, a wonderful teacher in my high school years who had been an agency art director on Madison Avenue in the 60s, which is what Mad Men is all about. So she was trained at a very high level, me and the other students, to all of the design manuals that were published then. And I studied them like it was my Bible. And I learned all the different ad agencies and designers and illustrators and who was doing what. And I eventually wanted to be an art director and wanted to work in advertising design, which is very parallel to graphic design. And then along the way, I discovered that people were designing things in motion and applying type and graphics to motion was in the movie business, what was called titles. And then I learned of Saul Bass, who did titles and graphics and corporate identity and logos and so on. And I followed him and studied him and, and wanted to be like him and liked his work above any other designers I was aware of. And then I learned that Saul was, uh, his offices were right here in Los Angeles, where I lived, lived then. So I pursued him and tried to get a meeting with him. And I'd go to his office and hang out there and try to meet him. Finally, he took me in one day and looked at my work, which I had prepared to show him a, a whole portfolio of designs. And he was very encouraging. Then he took me down the hall to his assistant uh, art director, Art Goodman, who reviewed the work as well. And then Saul said he was interested in following me and he wanted me to stay in touch with him regularly. So he began mentoring me. And this went on for a couple of years. And then I went into the Navy and I became a, a journalist and I ran a newspaper on one ship I was on while in Vietnam. And then I was 
transferred to another ship. Well, between the two, I, I was sent to journalism school, a U.S. military school in Minneapolis. So I became a kind of an official journalist that, that knew how to write stories. And, and with my graphic design influence and training, uh, I ran this newspaper on one ship and then a television station on another ship, a big aircraft carrier. And I was doing the station IDs and graphics and, uh, you know, everything was within that emphasis. And then when I came out of the Navy, I went to Saul Bass and he at that time was just designing the Bell telephone logo and he needed the designers to apply that logo to the hundreds of different applications that a company like Bell Telephone would need around the world, you know, for their trucks and hats and shirts and graphics and TV spots and so on. And he was hiring uh, three or four designers to do that. And he wanted to hire me, but something clicked in my head. Uh, I guess my ego came out and I realized, I said to myself, well, if Saul Bass wants me, I must be good enough. So I turned the job down and I opened a little studio of my own and on a very low level, I began competing with him. And as I began to get title design work, uh, Saul of course was doing titles, but it wasn't his regular job. He, his, most of his work was in corporate identity and big projects for the biggest companies in the world. Uh, but occasionally we'd run into each other at, uh, these cattle calls where they'd have a few designers come in to view the film and then offer ideas for the titles. Uh, we stayed friends uh, until he died. When he started doing Scorsese's work after I had, I had done, I think, six or eight films with Marty, Saul would call me and I'd come over for lunch at his place on Sunset Boulevard and we'd commiserate about Marty. And he really wanted my advice on how to deal with Marty. Because I had a very good relationship with him. But as Marty's prestige and fame grew, he decided that he had to have the best or the top guy in the title world. So he hired Saul. And then after doing five films with Marty, Saul died. And then Marty called me and I came back to do two other films. And we've lost touch since then. The last one I did was The Aviator. And when I look into it, that was now, what, 14 years ago. But I didn't do the other way, so it's okay. Your career is so varied. And I think, you know, a title designer and the work that you do, there's an opportunity to kind of have a style and do that over and over again. And that's what you're known for. But what stands out to me in terms of your career is it's not that. Every single title that you've designed over the years is unique and interesting and specific to that movie. And I'd love to kind of start at the beginning. You've mentioned Scorsese, and of course, the early ones, especially The Exorcist and Taxi Driver, are the two that really stand out to me initially. And I'd love to talk a little bit about how you first got involved, let's say, with Billy Friedkin, and then moving into to Scorsese for the first time. The way it happened with Friedkin was he was looking, I learned later, was looking for a sound effects editor for The Exorcist. And he went to see this movie, Electroglide in Blue that the well-known sound effects editor, Jimmy Nelson, had done. And Jimmy was a good friend. I was even renting space from him, and he had a little editing complex in Hollywood, and I had a little room there as part of that. But Jimmy would always promote me to various directors he was working with. But anyway, Billy saw Jimmy's 
sound design work on Electroglide, and he hired him to do The Exorcist and saw my title work on Electroglide in Blue. And from that, he decided he wanted me to do the titles for The Exorcist. And at that time, these films were coming along that became big blockbusters that were usually from books, the first one being The Godfather in 1972, and then Exorcist was 74. So these films have come along that were huge hits. And in the business, when you're associated with a hit, everybody wants you. So people were chasing me down to do their titles. And I could call any producer who I might want to work with. And he say, well, what have you done? And when I tell him, he say, just come on over. You know, whereas if I hadn't done The Exorcist, he wouldn't even take my call. You know, I mean, he didn't know who I was because the, there was no fame connected to me from having worked on a big movie. And uh, that sort of carried itself forward for years. I mean, I rarely had to call anyone for work unless it's a, a film that I've heard about that I really want to work on. And maybe those people don't know of me or busy with other things. And so I would call them and try to get to work. On Taxi Driver, actually, I first met Marty. And forgive me, I don't recall how that happened, but he wanted me badly to do Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore which was the film just before Taxi Driver. And I was at Columbia, and the head of post-production at Columbia, uh, Rudy Fair, was a very famous old film editor who had done many Hitchcock films. And now he's running post-production at Columbia. And when Marty said he wanted me, Rudy Fair said, who's Dan Perry? No, can't have him, no. So uh, Marty apologized that he said, I only have a few cards to play on this film, and I really need this particular guy for my sound effects and so on. So I can't play my card to get you on board, but you'll definitely do my next film. And that was Taxi Driver. And so he kept his word when I came along. And then I did every film he was doing from then on. I was just automatically called in when it was time to pick up titles. And um, I, I think I've done my best work with Marty because he's so collaborative and so giving and and uh, supportive. And you know, he, he's very smart where... He hires the right person for each category, and then he lets them do what they do and supports them rather than telling them what to do, which would you know, diminish their creative responses. I always had, did my best work with Marty and seemingly always had the best ideas, and uh, we had a great, great time uh, year after year after year. The, the filmography is, I mean, like we would just have this conversation if you had only worked with Scorsese because every single movie that you did with him just really defines it from the get-go. Raging Bull stands out to me, right? That pop of color before even diving into them what becomes a, a full black and white. And so seeing then your, your evolution and then 20 years later yeah. working again on Gangs and on Aviator, I think is such a a cool way to really show your career and, and show kind of your progression through, through the industry. You're, you're right about that. I, I, I'm writing a book now about my career, finally, after years of colleagues and others <laughs> trying to get me to do that. And uh, I've just, I've only recently finished the writing and I've really enjoyed going back in time in my memory and remembering all these <laughs> incidents and anecdotes and stories, crazy stories sometimes working with directors and producers and actors and so on. And uh, I've, I've finished the writing and I'm now designing every page of it. I'm covering uh, 51 films featuring 28 of them. And every one of them, there's stories about both the design of the work and why I did what I did and 
the process of doing it. And then whenever it applies, there'd be anecdotes, uh, like working with Scorsese, there were things that happened on New York, New York, and a taxi driver and racing bull and so on. And then with other directors as well, uh, there's stories and people I've dealt with that sometimes I might not have done the titles on the film, but dealt with, for example, uh, Orson Welles. I had dinner with him way back in the seventies and, um, I write about that and, um, Another time, Kirk Douglas was directing a film in the 70s as well, and he wanted me to do the titles. I met with him, and then I was going to show him ideas, and I was to go to Paramount and meet him. But that day, he called me and said, I'll come over to your place. So he came over, and then this incident happened with him. Very amusing. What a tease. <laughs> no, that's no, I can't wait to read it. Yeah, and I'm sure everyone listening will, will love to read that as well because, again, I think it's important for the listeners to understand that when we talk about title design, we're not just talking about a logo creation. We're really talking about you creating the first two minutes of a movie and, and setting the tone for it and shooting it right. and putting it all together. And um, before diving into, of course, Star Wars, I would love to take a brief moment and talk about your work on Close Encounters, yep. which is so seminal and as one of my favorite movies of all time, I would be remiss not to bring it up. What was it like working with Spielberg and, and bringing that to life? All right. Well, um, it came about when, uh, oddly enough, the taxi driver was connected to it because the producers, Michael and Julia Phillips, who at the time were the power couples in town. They had done the sting the year before and won Best Picture. So they were high on that. Whatever they wanted to do, the, stu- the studio would let them do. So they wanted to do uh, Taxi Driver. Uh, then their next film was Close Encounters. So they brought me along, so to speak, with them and introduced me to who was known then as Steve, began working together, and this was before they even shot the movie. So uh, his wisdom, and that's what makes part of what makes him great, is that he realized the, the importance of creating an identity, which is now called branding, but to brand his film with a logo before he even shot the movie, so that it would expose the project to the industry and eventually to the public. And it would give uh, the crew and the cast something to represent them, to follow and live behind and be part of. So I designed the logo and then we did a compliment of stationery and other graphic things that, you know, then before computers, before emails, everything was done with letters. So, I designed this beautiful stationery that was printed with engraving and blind embossing and envelopes and all. And then they used that for all their graphics. We did T-shirts that all the cast and crew wore on location. And we had stickers that went on all the boxes of equipment and everything. So there was a full identity for the film. When Steve came back from location and started to edit. He wanted me to do all of these location titles that are within the film as well. Um, mm-hmm. And then I took over the film in terms of supervising the completion of, of the film elements. There was a special stock, film stock that Kodak had just developed and released that was used in duplicating film. And that was the optical effects world where this stock was used called interpositive where you'd copy off the negative. You have a new negative that you would then shoot from onto new color stock. And while you're doing that, you would make a freeze frame or a fade out or a, a, a blow up of the shot or whatever the effect might be. But it was a full generation from the original. And there, it was a lot of dirt and grain and 
a lot of denigration to the image. Well, Kodak developed this new stock where you could go right from the negative to a new negative. And, and during the process of that, you could superimpose your title or do your fade out or whatever it was. So uh, I suggested to Steve that we do all of the effects in the film where there were location titles and anything else on this called CRI, Color Reversal Intermediate, what it was called. But it involved jeopardizing the negative, the actual negative of the film. Only one of those existed, you know. So he, he talked to the head of post-production at Columbia, Tom McCarthy, into letting me do this. So I supervised the and controlled the negative of the film. And for several weeks, uh, they bring a reel of cut negative from the lab over to my effects company. And I would sit there with the cameraman next to him as he ran this roll of negative down to the point where we would shoot from it onto CRI and do these effects. And it looked so much better, like light years better. It was almost not even a dupe. It was almost like the orig original quality was so much better. And still was, was so happy with that and it made the film look so much better. So, uh, you know, I, I became a specialist in all of these categories and people really counted on me and relied upon oh, my opinion and what they wanted me to do. And I would always bring more to it just because I... I'm good at that, you know, and, and studied how things are done and knew what process to use and all of those things. Finally, um, parallel to that, as they were finishing Close Encounters, Steve was being shown poster and one-sheet designs for the movie from the Columbia Advertising Department, who was in turn hiring every single design studio in New York and L.A. to present ideas for the poster. Uh, this is going to be a big, big movie for Columbia. So apparently he's seen like hundreds of designs from all these top design studios and rejected all of them. He then told the head of advertising, Bob Court, that he wanted me to design the ad campaign. So I had a meeting with Court. He hired me. We negotiated a deal. And then I went off and did the entire ad campaign for the movie. All posters, billboards, every size ad and newspapers and uh the game box there was a they designed a game around the movie uh, a hardcover book a soft cover book uh, a record album cover anything that was needed was coordinated so that there was a, a main identity the graphics became known as the road and the glow was the basis of the design uh, i then supervised the printing of the posters we used a silver ink and um um, black uh, silk screening as part of it, so it, it would really beef up the black. And it was, you know, it was a great time where I was very heavily involved in in uh, films I was working on. And Close Encounters is a good example. Recently, uh, the, the, the graphics for the movie are was just recently taken into the Library of Congress as a permanent part of the collection. It, I mean, really, it has stood the test of time. I actually. This summer, I drove. I've always wanted to go, and so I drove from Texas to Devil's Tower and oh. stayed. A few oh, really? Just cool. because <laughs> that movie just means so much to me. Yes. So, um, I can see why. Beautiful. That's great. That's wonderful. Well, we've been dancing around it a little bit, but of course, the title sequence that stands out to me the most as someone that hosts a Star Wars podcast is, of course, 
the original Star Wars, and I'd love to talk about how you initially got involved with that very early iteration of ILM and the process you went through with not only Lucas, but with Joe Johnson and John Dykstra and and this whole team to really create the most iconic opening to a movie of all time. (laughs) Yeah, it's funny how that became that. Of course, no one knew about it at the time, and I was working on other films, and I... (sighs) Uh, I never had a high opinion of, of this movie. Uh, at the, oftentimes I would see a whole film or at least the first few reels of it in order to get an idea and respond to what the film needed. But Star Wars was so um, confusing and they, they had so many editors and so many versions and so much of it was, was a fact and there was never an assembly that was comprehensive enough to view and get a visceral emotional reaction to it. So I was designing the dark, you know, and um, Lucas was giving me clues and hints and things he wanted to see, me to see. I would I'd come over to his, uh, to ILM at the time, which was in Van Nuys, California, out in the San Fernando Valley on this residential street where they built these big uh, cinder block buildings. And it was very industrial. And <laughs> it was the first location for ILM. And that's where Dykstra and Robbie Blaylock and uh, all of whom became famous afterward and had their own companies right. and, and others as well. But I'd go out there with ideas and I'd view uh, episodes of, of uh, Buck Rogers and the other space heroes of 30s and 40s uh, Saturday morning films that were on television. Uh, and then I'd look at other things that came to mind that I thought there might be some some uh, elements that I could draw from and get ideas from. And finally, uh, I saw this uh, Cecil B. DeMille film from 1940 called Union Pacific about the railroad. And it was set in the 40s, I guess, or maybe the 30s. But uh, the opening shot was looking down the tracks, right, from like a tra- the back of a train, perhaps, and from under the camera, the titles roll down the tracks away from you. So I visualized that being in space. And by that time, Lucas had given me the, the legend, the, you know, the opening preamble that rolls back into space. So I started designing that to tilt back and roll into space. And he liked the idea. So I started testing, developing it, and setting the type and different line breaks and different emphasis on, on uh, how long it should be, the spaces between the lines, all the little things that made it work. And tested and tested and shot things, and I, then I'd take it out to, to him, and I'd wait for hours while he would look at um, takes of explosions and different effects and uh, spaceships flying overhead and and I would sit with him and watch all this stuff, waiting for him to have a moment so I could show him something. Usually he'd reject it. I mean, he was under great pressure and was not having a good time and was not very cheery. But we finally got to a point where he approved of concept and the, the speed of the crawl and the, the tilt of the animation and the line breaks. And uh, finally, after about, about three months of intensive work, just shooting and getting it right i delivered it and it was only a few weeks before the release of the film on may 25th right 1977 the bottom line is i really didn't have at the time i wasn't 
it wasn't one of my enjoyable jobs. <laughs> I mean, that has to be labor intensive as it was, right? Shooting it, and then I'm sure with changes coming into the actual crawl and having to reshoot and reshoot, I'm sure that was not the most fun thing. Oh yeah, he changed the wording all the way too, you know, and uh, and then simultaneously I was developing the logo, which had already been done. It was on the cover of a brochure that he used to try to sell the movie. And it was very much more um, German, uh, Nazi-ish in its construction and its proportions. So I redesigned it and thickened all the lines and spread it out over a widescreen uh, anamorphic aspect image. Uh, and it, you know, it had to live on film and film has limitations, much more so than digital does. Uh, so you couldn't make things real skinny or real small or things like that because uh, the film wouldn't hold it. Resolution was not sufficient. So with all those limitations, I had to design something functional and that worked and solve the, the aesthetic problems. And that one turned out to be the one used mostly on the posters, right? Like the, it looks like the crawl, the way that it's shaped and the way that you really constructed it. Yeah, another version of it is used on a poster, which is in two lines, stacked stars above wars, where um, I still have a few of the alternate designs that I showed him. I did a tissue drawing, and then I had a photostat made of it, and I pasted down a piece of cardboard and put a flap on it and would bring a few over to show him. And I still have a few of those alternate designs that appear in my book. The shift to digital happens and I'd be curious about how your process changed at all, right? Going from very specific, but even then, like, I'm thinking Gangs of New York is a physical piece that you put together, but I'd be curious of how that shifted as you moved more and more into the digital space. I, I did Gangs of New York digitally. Uh, I produced it digitally, but the basic graphics, which are these old... Uh, 1850s wooden block letters that were used to print newspaper headlines and posters at that time, which I found at a uh, prop house out in Hollywood years ago. And I then just took them and stacked them up after, after choosing the right size letters, the right fonts for each of those words. And I stacked them up in, um, out in the, in the light in my backyard on my picnic table. I <laughs> photographed them with, a state-of-the-art camera at the time, uh, get this now, a five-megapixel camera. <laughs> now you can buy one for $100 at 18 megapixels, you know. Yeah. But this was the best they had at that time. So I photographed it off a, off a tripod uh, in natural light and then uh, took it into uh, an editing program and edited the sequence into how it lives as the end credits. And the main title, of course, is just the title Zooming Up, from infinity uh, up big in the screen. And I wanted it to be, I wanted it to almost go off the screen. I wanted it to be so big because it was so powerful and the film was so muscular. But uh, we had limitations from the legal contracts with the actors and the technicians and so on. So it could only be that big. But then at the end credits, we zoom in and punch it and pan it and whip pan and so on. And then the titles lay over the graphics of the main title and I was very happy with that. That worked out really well. Man, 
I mean, it looks incredible. And again, we there are so many that we have not discussed that I'm sure you will discuss in, in further detail in your book, whether it's Airplane or The Warriors or uh, one of my favorite in recent memory and one of the best titles of probably the past 10 years is Suspiria and what you did there making a title actually feel like terror <laughs> is, is really incredible. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that was a, a wonderful project working with Luca. Uh, it, it went on for over a year, but we had really a good time and had a lot of long phone calls when he was back in Italy editing. And then when he'd come here, we'd meet uh, endlessly and exchange ideas. And it was a very creative time. Uh, I really enjoyed that project a lot and proud of what it became. Unfortunately, it wasn't very successful uh, as a film. But it was an incredible film. <laughs> one of the, we, we talked about Suspiria, but again, going back to horror, another one of the things I, I love is A Nightmare on Elm Street is is so iconic in its own right. And I would love oh, to yes. dive in a little bit on that process because even now that just sticks out to me as something just so iconic, especially in the realm of, of horror. Yes. Um, yeah, back, back in, I'm trying to remember the year of that was, maybe 73 or so, uh, I met Wes Craven, who did the original, and I did the titles for that and the logo and so on. And then they wound up using it on the on the uh, VHS release and posters and so on. Uh, I didn't design it for that, but they you know, took it and used it anyway. Uh, Nightmare Part Three, I was considered to direct the film, oh, wow. and then when they hired uh, Chuck Russell, they gave me the second unit to direct. So. I wound up directing almost half the movie when I finally got the VHS of the release of the film and I copied all my shots. I worked with all the principals and all, and did all the effects shots. Uh, I did about 40% of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> and then the, the poster and the graphics and, and the title sequence, of course, I directed that and then designed the title sequence with the titles. And then I did part four as well, I directed the title sequence uh, but then um, uh, other films for New Line, but then that kind of faded. And later, Bob Shea sold it out to uh, Warner Brothers anyway. It was great fun working with, uh, uh, on part three, with the actors. Uh, became friends with Robert Englund, and he used to send me Christmas cards every year. <laughs> um, you know, all those side, side things that come out of working with people yeah. and creating things and with them, you know, in collaboration with them many times and it just makes it all better yeah. you know, the work is better the experience is better and the product is better and everyone's happy and uh, you know, it makes for good filmmaking and good design and, and good relations yeah definitely I, I mean speaking on that with actors i would be curious about your evolution of your relationship with jody foster right because you have instances where you're doing the titles for taxi driver or panic room but then you work on the beaver. So I'd be curious yeah. if that's ever evolved or how that relationship has kind of grown over the years. Yes. Well, I never did meet her on Taxi Driver. But then as she became a director, I think she'd done two or three films before The Beaver. And her editor was an old friend of mine who had cut either all of her films or most of them, Lindsay Klingman, who I knew from um, uh, One Fell Over the Cuckoo's Nest. She was one of the editors on that. And uh, at one point, um, the other editor, Richard Chu, who I'm friends with as well, called me up to San Francisco where they were cutting the film uh, at uh, Fantasy Records where Saul Zance, the executive producer, was operating. And I 
saw the film and they wanted me to do the titles. And then finally, uh, Milos Foreman decided, hey, wait a minute, this is my film. And I want this other guy instead. So I wound up losing the movie. But uh, I still stayed in touch with Lindsay. So when she was doing The Beaver, she called me in to meet with Jody. And I did. And uh, originally it was going to be a simple type over live sequence. But after seeing the film, I said that this guy, after Jody commented that this guy is drowning, you know, he's underwater. And the opening shot of the film is he's laying on a, a mat, mattress that was floating on his swimming pool. It was kind of symbolic of his emotional condition. So when Jody said, this guy's underwater, I said, well, why don't we put the titles underwater and you know, suggest this weird place that he's in? So she said, good idea. So I took uh, a group of letters, uh, plastic architectural letters from uh, a job I had done. I designed a, a brochure for this architectural type company that did beautiful signs for you know, doctor's offices and all those things with these dimensional letters on these plaques next to the door of their offices and so on. So I took some of these letters and I put them on the first step of my swimming pool underwater and I just wrinkled the water a little bit and shot some video, showed it to Jody and she loved it. So then I had, the, I took letters made for the titles and I laid them on the step and, and submerged them and we then I pulled in a the digital camera that one of my students had when I was teaching at Art Center and we shot the sequence and then I did it a, a digital composite. We did a few more effects and things and it worked out great. There was a nice connection where I found that there were common letters in one t- type title that are the same as the second title and then a common letter in the second title, the same as a common letter in the third title. And I was able to connect them fr- through dissolves. So underwater, I had to invent a way to register each of them so they connected when you dissolve from one to the other and they matched and fit so my creative idea became difficult to execute technically because of the characterization of it and that happens a lot where i'll have an idea and i know it's right for the movie but how do i produce it now so make money on it still uh, do the concept that i had offered so those are challenges that come about uh, not by design, but just by happenstance, because that's the way it is. That's the way the world operates. But out of that, a lot of times it comes ideas that I would have never thought of if it wasn't for this problem of solving it, that I come across these technical things or ways to execute it that I wouldn't have thought of otherwise. And that's part of the fun. I mean, that brings up a larger point then, which is, you know, you have these processes and you've really I mean, perfected this this idea of what makes a good title but i i guess the question to you then would be what what does make a good title what differentiates good title design from from bad title design well the way i see it uh the titles have to be there because of contracts and uh guild requirements and so on so uh because they have to be there that's something you can't remove from the process uh but for me the titles are almost secondary uh there has to be something emotionally that connects to the viewer. So I draw from my own reaction to seeing the film. Mm-hmm. And then uh, out of it comes ideas that I don't know where they come from, you know, up in the sky somewhere. They just come through me. And most times there's a lot of ideas, not just one good one, but many good ones. So I have to sift through those things and oftentimes write them down, draw them 
as quickly as I can before they go away. Because I don't know where they come from, and I, they just pop into my head, and sometimes I'll wake up with an idea, and I'll grab an envelope or some piece of paper and scribble it down. Uh, I have it on Suspiria, where I had this, I, I started saving these pieces of paper, which I never had done before, and I had this big stack of scraps of paper, envelopes, uh, the back of a, of a bill I got from my TV service, or anything I can find to grab and scribble it down. And then I made a whole sequence of just these different ideas, uh, usually in pencil, and I put it all together and I use it as a teaching tool when I talk to students uh, at the different schools I've been visiting. Uh, so it all connects. It's a big circle. You know? And for me, it's, it's all about the, the emotion and the, the reality of the film and how the titles can affect and promote and move forward the storytelling, which the beginning usually is a title so that you can affect the viewer in a very effective way with the right ideas and execute it the right way. So it's an unexpected and unexplainable thing sometimes. Again, you, you, your work speaks for itself, and I appreciate you coming on. And this was such an honor and, and such a treat. And I'm, I'm really excited to now, for the rest of the world, not only to hear this, but to read your book and to read even more insight into, into what's going. Well, thanks, Brandon. Good. Thanks for the call, and I uh, enjoy talking with you. All right. We'll talk soon. They will. Bye. A huge thank you to Mr. Perry for coming on the show, as well as for creating probably the most iconic opening to a movie of all time. To be the first to find out when his book is coming out, head to danperry.com or follow him on social media. The links are all in the show notes. If right now you could go to where you're listening to this podcast and leave a five-star rating and a review, it is so appreciated. This Friday, we'll be back on Senior doing a live rewatch of the new Mandalorian episode at 7.30 p.m. Central with some really special guests from the George Lucas Talk Show. Until next week's episode, stay tuned, leave that five-star review, and may the Force be with you.